Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the takeout ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. You know, folks, this show, we, what do we say about our show? Politics, policy, a little bit of pop culture. Well, this show, this week, we're going to be pop culture adjacent. Look, I know this is kind of, for moviegoers, the summer of Oppenheimer. Okay, okay, it's more the summer of Barbie, but it's also the summer of Oppenheimer. And what do I mean by pop culture adjacent? We're going to talk about something very close to the Oppenheimer story, but something that I think will fascinate you even more than the movie and the successful U.S. development of the first atomic bomb. What is that topic? Well, it's about a scientist who worked on that project, who was very fearful about what that project would mean for humanity, and he made a momentous decision based on the scientific knowledge he gleaned working on that project. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm going to leave that up to our guest, Steve James, who is the director of a documentary called A Compassionate Spy, coming out this weekend in L.A., Chicago, Washington, D.C., and New York, and will be available on all streaming platforms or whatever streaming platform I'm sure Steve will fill us in on. Steve, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So tell my audience briefly... Who is the compassionate spy in your film? His name is Ted Hall, or wasn't Ted Hall. And he was this extremely young physicist. He was recruited out of Harvard at the age of 18 to work on the Los Alamos project. He graduated Harvard at the age of 18. Yeah, and graduated Harvard, age of 18 as a physicist. As a physicist. Recruited to go out to Los Alamos. <clears throat> and after he had been out there, for all of a year working on that project, he decided that this, what they were creating was such a destabilizing um, bomb that he wanted to pass secrets to our allies during the war, the Soviet Union, to prevent the U.S. from having this bomb all to itself in the post-war world where he feared it would it could be catastrophic. And there's a couple of threads there that I want to pull on. But the first one I want to pull on, Steve, is our allies, the Soviets, and the context around that time. Many in my audience will say, what are you talking about? Please explain. Well, yeah. So the Soviet Union um, were, were one of our principal allies during the war. In fact, 
One of the things we don't learn so much in this country growing up, at least I didn't, was the degree to which the Soviet Union played a vital role in the winning of World War II. We're we're tend to told that once we entered the war after Pearl Harbor, we just swept in and that was that. And that is not the truth. The Soviet Union played a vital role. They lost over 20 million people in that war. And we couldn't have won the war without them. And so they were our allies, even though there had been a history of acrimony and animosity on the part of the United States towards the Soviet Union going all the way back to the 1919 Red Scare. Red Scare. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I loved and coming across through your documentary was how this was not just a sort of side notion, this idea that the Soviets were our allies. There was a movie produced about this very thing, a successful movie that lionized and celebrated this alliance and the necessity of the Soviets doing their part in World War II. Absolutely. Roosevelt realized that he needed the American people to be supportive of our allies, the Soviet Union. So there's a movie we feature in our film called Mission to Moscow, which was this incredible film. I encourage people to watch the whole thing. There were actually others. Frank Capra made several of them, um, which also spoke to the, the the greatness of the Soviet people and and this the the country. And you know, it was all designed to promote the idea of the Soviet Union as our allies because they were a vital part of it. And and the and you know, the American people really didn't have much idea who the Soviets were and what idea they did have had tended to be negative up until that point. And Ted Hall is at Los Alamos, and he's not just sort of on the sidelines. He's central to much of the work, is he not? Yeah, so he starts out, you know, he's a junior physicist because, you know, he's 18. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was 18, I I was slobbering on my desk in high school. Um, so was I. And... So he was a junior physicist. You know, there were hundreds of scientists out there. But Ted demonstrated his his abilities so uh, amazingly that he got promoted. And he got promoted to working on the implosion process, uh, which was a vital part of the of the of the scientific development, which which led to how the bombs chain reaction happens in order for it to work. And so he was working on that process, which made him both very valuable to the effort there, but it also made the information that he collected extremely valuable when he made this momentous decision to start passing secrets to the Soviets. Again, Steve James is our special guest. And I want to let you know, Steve, one of the uh, producers who helps me put this show together, Jamie Benson, considers one of your early films, Hoop Dreams, the greatest movie made of all time. He's not alone in that category. Many people believe Hoop Dreams is a phenomenal movie. Steve James has a tremendous career in this documentary space. We'll list some of those movies uh, that he's associated with later on. Um, But I want you to tell my audience a little bit, Steve, about this idea that we were racing against the Nazis to develop a nuclear weapon, atomic weapon, but the scientist Ted Hall specifically became concerned that this wasn't just about the Nazis. It had a future role against our ally, the Soviets. Yeah, so, you know, Ted, like a lot of the scientists who went to Los Alamos, were motivated by two things fundamentally. One is it, the the science of it all, which was just off the charts. And you got you have to imagine that this was probably the greatest collection of scientists in one place ever in the history of the world. And they're all working on this this project. And why are they working on it? Well, there was this legitimate fear that the Germans were trying to develop their own version of this bomb and that we could not let them be the first to do that. And I think that's, that was absolutely true. Um, many of the scientists were also Jewish, uh, including Ted. And so they had a particularly strong feeling about what was going on with Germany and Nazi Germany and what was happening to their people. And so that was a big part of their motivation to do this. You know, Ted wasn't alone in 
wanting to include the Soviets in this effort. There were a, a number of scientists who felt that way, and there was discussion there. Um, at bring this, our allies in on this. Let's let's bring, let's bring get them, them understand what we're doing. Bring them in, but but Ted was one of the few people who decided to act on it because it was clear they weren't. And again, his fear was, yes, the U.S. having this bomb in the post-world world, what if a what if a, uh, a right-wing government came to power? Or knowing the, the U.S.'s history of acrimony towards the Soviet Union in the post-world world, what if the U.S. decides they want to preemptively strike the Soviet Union? Now, you could say, well, that's crazy. We, we would never have done that. But as our film makes clear, before the Soviets got the bomb, about five years after the war, the U.S. was, in fact, game planning on how to preemptively strike the Soviet Union because they had great fear of their growing power in Europe and Asia. And so, you know, it. one of the things that our film makes clear that doesn't really come through in the Oppenheimer film, which is a great film. <laughs> <laughs> Let us stipulate. Let us stipulate it's it's the uh, Moby Dick to our pilot fish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Steve, let me stop you right there because I got to hit a break. Uh, but with that great uh, metaphorical <laughs> reference, Moby Dick to uh, pilot fish, probably a little bit of an exaggeration on the uh, self-effacing uh, side. Steve James is our special guest. More of our conversation about his film, A Compassionate Spy and Ted Hall. When we come back, I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm very happy to have Steve James as our special guest this week. The movie A Compassionate Spy, available this weekend, talks about Ted Hall. Like I said, it's pop culture adjacent, adjacent to the movie Oppenheimer, one of the summer box office phenomena. Uh, Steve, carry on about what your film explores that Oppenheimer doesn't. So <clears throat> one of the things that was, that, that was clear, it wasn't necessarily clear at the time, and certainly among... Um, the scientists and and definitely not the general public, which is that the creation of this bomb, while a legitimate response to the fear of what the Germans were doing and, and the need to develop it, that ultimately the U.S. government had it in their sights that this was going to be a vitally important post-war world advantage and that it was going to be an advantage over the Soviets. And one of the things our film makes clear is after the Trinity blast, many of the scientists, uh, something like 70 of the most prominent scientists at Los Alamos signed a letter that they wanted sent to Truman that basically said, please do not drop this bomb on Japan. <laughs> um, let's do a demonstration blast. Mm -hmm. Show them what we are capable of but do not drop this bomb. It's an incredible letter that never found its way, presumably, to Truman's desk, as our film makes clear, because General Groves, who's played by Matt Damon in Oppenheimer, refused to pass it along to the president. I don't think it would have mattered, mm -hmm. frankly. 
Because right. for Truman and the U.S. government, the building of this bomb and the dropping of this bomb in Japan was as much about sending a signal to the Soviet Union as anything. There is strong evidence, and there's there are counter arguments to this, to be mm -hmm. fair. There's strong evidence that Japan was looking for a way to surrender, that Japan was not going to fight to the bitter end, that we weren't going to have to mount this massive invasion of the island. Um, but that the U.S. and that the Soviets were getting ready to mount their own invasion of Japan to do the, to do the dirty work, it, should it be necessary, and that the U.S. did not want that, and they wanted to send a message to the Soviets, look what we have. And as I remember from the movie, there's a quote from Dwight Eisenhower that the United States simply did not, there was no, if I remember correctly, no military necessity to dropping the atomic weapon in Japan. Yeah. It, 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 no he, less authority. He, he, he pleaded with the president to not do it directly um and was rebuffed mm -hmm. um and so yeah i i think that you know <laughs> the, and the also as I, as I learned also from the movie steve there has been in the retelling of the military's understood casualty estimates of what an invasion of mainland japan would cost the united states those numbers kept rising even after the fact of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in order to, your film asserts, make it more defensible. Absolutely. The, the initial estimates were not insignificant. The initial estimates were 20,000 soldiers could be lost. Now, I get it. If you're, if you were a soldier or a family mm -hmm. of a soldier at that time, <laughs> Yeah, you're in the Navy, you're the Marine Corps, you're going to have to be in the infantry. Yeah, that's a huge deal. It's a massive deal, no question. That, that's a massive deal, and that needs to be considered. Um, so this is in no way to diminish the, the great sacrifice that would have been incurred had the U.S. had to do the invasion, which is a question. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a real question. But had they done the invasion, the initial estimates were 20,000. But as the numbers came in about how many people died in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it moved into the hundreds of thousands of people that either died immediately in the blast or in the weeks in the aftermath from poisoning, that number kept getting inflated until it was a million soldiers we were going to lose if we because they wanted it to be more people, right. more American soldiers than the people who died in the bombing. So it would look, if nothing else, somewhat or quasi-proportional. Well, if anything, yes, way more in our, you know, way more men would have died than were mm -hmm. lost in Japan. So that was the that became the moral reasoning for why it was necessary that we do this. Steve, I'm very transparent with my audience, and I will let the audience know that one of the reasons I'm fascinated by this particular movie, not only because I learned so many things I didn't know. And as Steve has indicated, our own history and retelling of this story glosses over or leaves out entirely. But I have, for the last 18 or so months, also been fascinated by the world of espionage for this reason. I will, in the not-too-distant future, sometime in September or October, be releasing a multi-episode investigative podcast on Robert Hansen, the most damaging spy in the history of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So I've been fascinated by this world of espionage. There have been things that I learned in my process that I learned are complementary to things that Steve James puts forth uh, in the story of Ted Hall. One of them is Robert Hansen as an FBI agent was what is known in espionage circles as a walk-in. He introduced himself to the then Soviets to offer secrets. So did Ted Hall's friend. We'll get to his friend's name in a minute. They both went to exactly the same place, a building called Amtorg in New York City. This is one of the things that I'm fascinated by. So, yes, I'm talking to Steve James because this topic really hooks into me. And it hooks into me because I've been doing my own little project, which I'll tell you more about in the future. So let's talk uh, more deeply, Steve, about Ted Hall and his friend Savi or Seville Sachs. 
<clears throat> yeah, so they were they were best friends going back to their days at Harvard. Um, Ted was a brilliant student. Har uh, Savi, not so much. Um, but they were very close. They both came from Ger from Russian parents who parents born in Russia. They were both Jewish and they were both quite radical in their politics. So they fell in together. Uh, they, they were so close, in fact, that um, Ted, when Ted told Savi that he had been recruited to go to Los Alamos, Savi, being a very smart guy, realized that they must be creating some some kind of big bomb um and he immediately suggested and we we dramatized this mm -hmm. in our film he immediately suggested that ted should share this information with the soviets this is before ted's even gotten to los alamos <laughs> um which ted you know thought was crazy at the time but it stuck with him and it and speaks so to their overall orientation to these larger questions. To these larger questions. So then when Ted came back to celebrate his 19th birthday, he got a, a leave from Los Alamos to come back to celebrate his birthday. Uh, they went out in a rowboat on Central Park Pond <clears throat> and began to hatch a plan for how Savvy would act as the intermediary to go to the Soviet Union um, uh you know, embassy to basically volunteer Ted's information. And that's what happened. And the first information that Ted provided them, because they were skeptical, like, of course, you know, what this 19 year old guy has, right. you know, what could he know? What could he possibly know? They probably didn't even believe he was at Los Alamos. Um, uh, but when he provided them with names of many of the prominent scientists who were working at Los Alamos, that got their attention and they began to believe that he was legit. And then later, when he passed the implosion uh, intelligence, then that was the intelligence that was of great value. Great value and was very similar, if not exactly, to the information provided by someone who many in my audience at least may remember the name, hearing it in some context or another, Klaus Fuchs. We'll get into that. But when we come back on the other side of this break, we're going to talk about Ted Hall and the Rosenbergs. Many of you in my audience know who the Rosenbergs are. I guarantee you none of you knew who Ted Hall was. And if there is a Hall of Fame or a Hall of Infamy, Ted Hall ranks much higher than the Rosenbergs. More on that with our special guest, Steve James. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of The Takeout, coming up in just a second. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. Steve James is our guest. A Compassionate Spy is the movie. So, Steve, talk to my audience about the Rosenbergs and how they are different from Ted Hall. I know there are many aspects to that, but the big picture. Yeah, well, so Julius Rosenberg was not a scientist, um, but he he really was more of a carrier, a courier, rather, not a character. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know what, if it, what he might have carried, but he was a courier that provided intelligence to the Soviet agents. His wife, Ethel, really wasn't involved. She just was knowledgeable about what he was doing, but she really didn't have any direct role in any of this. But that didn't prevent her from being executed along with Julius Rosenberg. Um, and so- In a criminal prosecution that was a global sensation. It was a truly global sensation. I mean, Hoover 
really wanted to put, FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. Yep. Wanted to put this out in the public way in a huge way uh, to show that the FBI was really tracking down these culprits who had been part of uh, helping the Soviet Union get this bomb. Because when the Soviets it, uh, detonated their first test merely five years after um, the U.S. did, it shocked the world and it shocked U.S. intelligence because the, all estimates were that it would take them at least 10 years to do it. There wasn't a question that they were going to do it, but they did it much faster. So that's when it became clear there must have been spies. So Julius Rosenberg and Ethel Rosenberg became the poster couple for this whole effort of catching these spies. When it, And what's interesting at the time is there were many, many people who felt awful for the Rosenbergs on the left mm -hmm. and felt like they were being scapegoated and that they were actually innocent, that Julius Rosenberg was innocent. Well, Ted knew enough to know just from following it in the papers that Rosenberg probably wasn't innocent. And he wasn't. Let's be just and clear. Let's be clear. He was not innocent. And he wasn't innocent. And what's interesting, and we get into this in the film, is that Ted also knew that the information that he had passed on was a great, much greater consequence than what Julius Rosenberg had passed on. <clears throat> and he wanted to go and confess his involvement with the hopes of saving the Rosenbergs. Mm -hmm. And of course, Joan Hall, his wife, who is a very big part of this film, and this film is as much a a love story as an SBI. It is unquestionably a love story. Um, Joan said, you're crazy, essentially, that if you if you go and you confess, it will not help the Rosenbergs. It just means we will be executed right alongside them. And she was right about that. Mm -hmm. She was right about that. So she prevented him from doing that. But there's a really powerful um, moment in our film that we we dramatize when they were on their way to a party. Um, mm. Yes. When, and, uh, and it happened to be the day that the Rosenbergs were being executed and they passed within a mile of Sing Sing prison where the execution was happening. <clears throat> and it dawned on them just how profoundly awful what was going on and what what could be their fate if they were to be discovered. And the party wasn't dubbed a Rosenberg execution party, but it felt that way to Ted and Joan. Yes, absolutely. Who was Klaus Fuchs? Klaus Fuchs was a, a, a very prominent um, scientist at Los Alamos. He was German. <clears throat> but had had um, emigrated to Britain uh, when the war started. And Klaus ends up playing a prominent role, actually, in, in the development of implosion. Um, he was appointed to kind of head up that particular division. So eventually, Ted Hall was working with Klaus Fuchs, although neither of them knew that the other were, were uh, being spies. And so what's interesting is so Klaus Fuchs, you know, passed along implosion information. And so when Ted passed along very much the same information to the to the Russians, that's when they knew it was legit because they had real suspicions that Klaus Fuchs was a double agent mm -hmm. and that he might be leading them astray. So Ted's information confirmed the truth. Now, what's interesting is, is that in the post-war world, when the FBI came after Ted with the release of the Venona documents, which we mm -hmm. haven't really talked about yet, but when the FBI came after Ted and tried to get him to confess to what he had done, the British intelligence also went after Klaus Fuchs, and Klaus Fuchs confessed and ended up with a 14-year prison sentence. So... Lots to unravel there. I'll get, we'll get to the Venona documents in a second, but I also want to bring in another part of this story, which is Ed Hall, Ted's older brother. Because not only is he significant in the history of American engineering and as it applies to military science, but also central to the FBI's relationship to and ability or inability to fully go after Ted Hall. Yeah, this is this is the kind of thing that, you know, in the 
Hollywood movie version of Ted's story. If you saw this, you'd go, oh, come on. They come made on. It. Right. Come, no, no, no. Strike that. That's that's <laughs> yeah. impossible. Yeah, that's just way too coincidental. But as it turns out, Ted Ted's older brother, Ed, who was 11 years older than him, was in the Air Force. He was a he was a prominent engineer. He was so prominent. He really was heading up what became the anti-ballistic missile program of the United States, which eventually would carry nuclear warheads. Mm-hmm. And so so Ed Ed is in the Air Force Hall of Fame because of the work that he did on behalf of the United States in the missile program. So when the FBI went after Ted, they realized, didn't take them long to realize that his older brother was this 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 engineer of great prominence. And their first concern was, is that was was he also right? Could he possibly be an agent and be passing along secrets about missiles to the Soviets? Well, they they dismissed that pretty quickly, but then they decided he must know something about Ted. He can help us get Ted. And so they talked to him about Ted. When they first talked to him about it, Ed did not know what Ted had done, but it prompted Ted or it prompted Ed to make an impromptu visit to Ted's home in in um, in Chicago, and basically say what's what's going on, right. what, what happened, and Ted told Ed everything, and because of this profound love between these two brothers, Ed never gave Ted up, despite further pressure from the FBI and from the military. In fact, according to Ted, and you you see this in the film in a taped interview that Ted does, uh, that he did for posterity, uh, they threatened to sort of muster him out of, uh, if not the Air Force, certainly out of the military um, missile program, if he did not come up with and turn on Ted. And Ed said, go ahead. Go ahead. Try to get along without me. Yeah. And they knew they couldn't. And they knew they couldn't. And uh, I don't want to make a scientific pun or anything here. I have no capability in that regard. But they were fused together. There was no way to split these two brothers apart, atomically or otherwise. That's the end of my uh, scientific punnery. Um, That's pretty good, though. That's pretty good. (laughs) Steve, I want you to begin the answer to this question, and I want to carry it over into our segment four. What is your point of view on Ted Hall? Is he a hero? Well... I think what Ted did was incredibly courageous and brave. Uh, and I think when you see this film, the film is sympathetic towards what Ted did. Um, I understand, though, the position that people will take watching this film or if they read this history of saying he shouldn't have done what he'd done, that the Soviet Union was a totalitarian state and that he was playing a very dangerous game by uh, helping them get the bomb. But the people who say that Ted Hall is responsible for the Soviet Union getting the bomb are wrong. The Soviet Union was going to get the bomb. Ted Hall and others helped them get the bomb more quickly. And the reason Ted Hall did this wasn't because he thought the Soviet Union was a flawless, beautiful, communist uh, nirvana. Paradise. It was because he worried about the U.S. having the bomb to itself. And given the fact that the U.S. was willing and did drop two bombs on Japan, would they be willing to drop more bombs on the Soviet Union? And we're going to continue that part of what Steve James, the director, wants the audiences to feel and their perspective on Ted Hall. We come back. Segment four of The Takeout in just one second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to the Takeout segment four. Steve James, our special guest, the movie A Compassionate Spy, available on all. Uh, where is it available, Steve? Uh, let me have you. Let me leave that to you, not to me. <laughs> well, it's uh, <clears throat> it's it's available. It's first of all, it's going to play theatrically in a number of cities like New York, Chicago, Washington D.C., and some others. Um, uh, L.A. Um, and then it's also going to be available at the same time on many of the major streaming platforms excellent so you can find it this weekend i highly recommend it it is a window into yeah i highly recommend it a a window into history that i guarantee you you don't know as well as you think you know uh what got you interested in this what was the uh original spark the spark really came from producer dave lindorf who i had interviewed on a totally different film and but Dave is a, is a journalist and a student of this particular history. And he met Joan Hall uh, after he did a, an article that she then reached out to him for, Joan, you know, Ted's uh, surviving wife. And that led to uh, him talking to her and realizing that he thought maybe this should be a film, not just an article. Mm-hmm. And so, so um, Dave reached out to us and said, I think there's a film here. And that, the more I learned about it before I'd even met Joan, I thought, well, this was really fascinating. I knew nothing about any of this. Mm-hmm. And so we made a trip to Cambridge, England, where Joan was living. And we spent four days with her and we interviewed her. And based on that, I decided this is a story I wanted to tell. So we mentioned this earlier, and it's an important part of the story Venona Papers. What are they and what did they reveal about Ted? Well, so um, during the war, the Soviets had this code that was considered to be unbreakable, the Venona Code. <clears throat> and it had it not been for some lazy um, Soviet agents who didn't follow protocol, they might never have broken the code. But the U.S. did break it. It was a phenomenal feat, but they broke it. And of course, then they started to intercept cables and understand what the Soviets were doing without the Soviets being aware for a long time that the, the code had been broken. Um, but but immediately after the war, as they dug into this, into the all the cables and codes, especially following the, the Soviets having detonated the bomb, their own bomb, they discovered that they that Ted Hall had been an agent um at los alamos and it wasn't hard to figure out that it was ted because their code name for ted was just a slight (laughs) modification of his actual name so they 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 clearly thought it was an unbreakable code um (laughs) and (laughs) and so what happened is is that you know this better than i because you've been digging into it but it's more a little more complicated than this but basically the fbi and intelligence did not want to advertise that they had broken the code even even when they brought ted in for questioning um because they knew it was a spy and they knew that he would be able to communicate back with soviet agents and they also knew and this is something we make clear in the film that the venona code information was probably not going to be able to be used in court so they had all this incredible information on exactly what Ted had done, but what they needed was Ted to confess, or they had to find other evidence that could link him to this. And he never confessed and they never found the evidence. Yeah. And Ted was steely spined. And after, after one full day of, of uh, interrogation, he returned the following Monday and basically said, I'm done. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And he knew that if they really had anything, they would arrest him, and they weren't arresting him. Right. Now, uh, Ted's not a swashbuckler. He's not Bonnie and Clyde or anything like that, but he did live out a natural life. 
He lived this entire story untouched by the law. He never went to prison. He was never held to account for this. And you think that is just or unjust, Steve James? Well, I'm sympathetic to Ted because I think that he acted on principle. He was not one of those spies that did it for money or for glory. He did it because he had a genuine, genuine fear of what could happen if the U.S. had the bomb to himself. And that's where the title comes from, correct? Yes, he did it out of compassion. That's the way he assesses it. Did he have misgivings about what he'd done? Yes, and he speaks to those. Um, would he have done it again, over? He's not so sure he would have. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, Joan, his wife, is convinced he would have. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> but Ted, Ted is not convinced. But I think... I think there's enough evidence that Ted was not being naive uh, in his fear. And we get into this in the film mm -hmm. that the U S was in fact ramping up production of the bomb in the post-war world, even though the war was over, they were game planning a preemptive strike in the Soviet union. They did use the bomb as a threat on multiple occasions to exercise their will in the post-war world before anyone else had the bomb. Yeah, just look and up Soviet already, Union. Just look up Soviet Union and Iran, and you'll find some yeah. uh, very strong evidence of that. Um, and as the film also makes clear, the more that Ted learned about the monster that Joseph Stalin was and the horrors within that society under his watch, the more ambivalent he became about this entire choice he made. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. He came to have great ambivalence about it. And the, the way in which he could conscience what he did, he speaks to this in the film is, and I think this is true. He did not do this for the Soviet government. He did this for the Soviet people that he feared would perish in a preemptive strike. And, and again, it's good to remember that Ted's parents came from Russia. Mm-hmm. He, he had a Russian background. Um, and so that also had a profound influence on his fears for what could happen in his parents' homeland. And this idea of America as a monopoly power in the atomic weapon space was his preeminent fear. Yeah. And it and was as existential as anything he could have ever imagined. Yeah, and he and he imagined all of this at the age of nineteen. Yeah. <laughs> Again, back to your reference and my echoing of it. Eighteen, I'm I'm drooling on. Take your pick. Uh, my freshman year in college or my last semester of high school. Either way, I'm drooling in both libraries. Not a physicist. Not at Los Alamos. Not a participant in one of the greatest, if not the greatest, scientific explorations humanity has ever known, and all the myriad consequences that come from it. Steve James has been our special guest. The film, again, A Compassionate Spy, available this weekend, folks, on streaming platforms. It's in L.A., it's in Chicago, it's in Washington, D.C., it's in L.A. I highly recommend it. Stay tuned for our takeout, Outtake Especial, where we'll talk to Steve about his other films and movies he loves. See you next week. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Welcome to your takeout outtake especial. I'm Major Garrett. Uh, I didn't introduce you all to this before, but if those watching on Paramount Plus or CBS News streaming, welcome to my third floor office. You've seen it before. D.C. Bureau, Washington, D.C., CBS. Steve James is our special guest. Uh, he's made many documentary films. Uh, Hoop, Hoop Dreams are probably among the most well-recognized and lauded. His most recent film, A Compassionate Spy, about Ted Hall. So uh, let's talk films. I saw in uh, some clips about you, Steve, that one of the formative films for your life was Harlan County, USA, and Nashville. Those two films. Uh, tell my audience why. Well, Harlan County, USA is a documentary that I saw back when I was falling in love with film. It was one of the first documentaries that I fell in love with. And I was just kind of blown away by Barbara Koppel, who directed the film, mm -hmm. her ability to sort of embed herself in this mining community and tell this very personal and powerful story of, of union organizing and strike and uh it it's kind of film that made me think god that would be such a great thing to do mm -hmm. <laughs> and here i am <laughs> and what about nashville nashville is is one of my favorite narrative films i've ever seen it's in my top 10 list and i think a big part of why i love it so much is because it's like a documentary right. in a way <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, and it's, it's got all of these characters who are interwoven in this incredibly creative way. And it is, it's just such a powerful story about politics in America. Um, and, and it's done in this very sort of documentary fashion that you feel like you're really witnessing life on the screen. So you mentioned it and it just piqued my curiosity. You said your top 10, do you know your top 10? films well i don't know if i can i can say them all uh how about your top five on demand but but here's <laughs> some, here's some of them sure um, uh uh vertigo the yes. great Hitchcock film um 2001 the space odyssey which was also very influential to me if you go see barbie folks you'll see the influence of 2001 space odyssey <laughs> that's right i i haven't seen it but i know um <laughs> Uh, Rules of the Game, which is a great film by the great French filmmaker Jean Renoir from 1939. I saw that in school. That was also a film that really made me want to fall in love with with filmmaking. Um, that's certainly in in my in my top list. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan of Days of Heaven, mm -hmm. the Terrence Malick movie from 1976. Um, I mean, those are those are some of the ones that great that, that I love. So uh, we also ask uh, we don't always have someone of your stature in the film industry uh, to talk about films. So we limit it to one. But you've given us many and I'm deeply appreciative of that. Uh, most influential book in your life and why? Oh, God, most influential book. Or one of the most. I don't want to well, necessarily know, I, pigeonhole I, you. This is this. No, no. Well, I, I would say. Uh, I mean, there's been, yeah, there's been a number of books that I would characterize that way, but I would say the first most influential book for me, this is going to be an odd choice in a way, except if, except because of the Hoop Dreams connection, <clears throat> was a book called Foul, the Connie Hawkins story. Oh my gosh. It's one of the first books I ever read as a child. Well, it's one of the first real books I ever read. You know, my parents were a very sports-minded family. We belonged to a sports book of the month club. And most of the books that showed up were not very good books. Right, right. I enjoyed them because I like sports. You know, right. The Dick, the Dick Butka story, I enjoyed it. It's right. not a good book. <laughs> That's right. But Foul, a Connie, the Connie Hawkins story, showed up one day. I started reading it and could not put it down. Mm -hmm. I was... I was a basketball player and it is, and I've, I have since read it in, 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 as an older person, it's every bit as good as it was when I read it the first time Yep. by David Wolf. It is, yep. it is one of the, one of the great sports uh, works of nonfiction that I know of. Absolutely. Could not agree more. And I can't believe that you and I have that one thing in common. Um, <laughs> 
If you are uh, taking a long drive or are, are you going to be on a long flight and you're going to enjoy your favorite music, what artist or genre is that most likely to be, Steve James? God, you, you should have given me some warning on this. <laughs> I never give anyone warning. <laughs> Get to the organic nature of these answers. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I'm a big Dylan fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, or, you know, not so much the most recent stuff, but but some of the earlier stuff. Um, uh, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I'm a big fan of him. Um, I... I like Jackson Brown a lot too. There you go. Uh, you know, those are good. Those are two good ones. Those are good. Those are two good answers. That's great. By the way, I'll let you all go on this note. Uh, my favorite movie of all time, and I, I believe it's the greatest movie that'll ever be made, is Network. Oh, well, you're in the because, right because because <laughs> most movie, many movies try, but no other movie has so thoroughly predicted the future. Yeah, it is a great movie. Patty Chayefsky. Yes. Wrote the screenplay. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Steve James, it's been a great, great pleasure. Congratulations. Again, the movie A Compassionate Spy. Go see it, folks. Find it wherever you can on streaming. You will not regret the time spent. Steve, thanks so much. Thank you. Greatly enjoyed it. That's it, folks. See you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.